the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Ed Martin and the Pro-America Report. On The Answer San Diego. Welcome, welcome. It's Ed Martin. It's the Pro-America Report. Great to be with you, as always. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, We do have a very interesting program tonight. Uh, Joel Pollack who really is one of the premier journalists in the country. He writes at Breitbart.com. He hosts a radio show over on Sirius XM, Patriot 125, I think. Um, but he's mostly just a great writer, investigative reporter. He sees uh, things and analytically you, he catches your eye. So he's got a new book that's called Red November. Joel Pollack's book, Red November. It's out in a few weeks, actually. I got an advanced copy. And it basically says in November uh, upcoming, you'll either pick people either pick the red, um, you know, red Republican or you'll pick the red, uh, the socialist communist agenda of the other side. And so it's uh, it should be interesting to talk to him. He's extraordinary. He's probably other than a couple other people, maybe in the media, one of the best at sort of debunking the fake news. So we'll talk about that, too. And we'll talk with John Schlafly uh, later on. And we also will speak with a gentleman, an attorney from Pennsylvania named Wally Z. Zimalong, Zimalong, who is the lead attorney suing the uh, Pennsylvania governor, who's kind of an out-of-control dude. His name's Tom Wolf, Governor Tom Wolf. So we'll talk about what they're doing to try to stop things that are happening in uh, Pennsylvania and how successful they are or not is another question, um, which is not... Um, uh, clear, I think, to most people. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's it's a, um, well, it's a mess in Pennsylvania as in other places. So uh, great to be with you. And we will also wrap some things up. We'll talk a little bit about China, what they're doing to Hong Kong. Uh, tomorrow, I'm going to spend some time on the program talking about the platform, the uh, Republican Party platform, the Democrat Party platform, why parties have platforms, what they mean. You may have seen some of that in the news, uh, but uh, we'll get to that tomorrow. It means a lot to me. It means a lot to some some people, others don't really track it at all. They don't really quite know what to make of it. Um, but uh, we will see. Uh, we'll talk about that tomorrow and and give you an update on some of uh, what's going on there now. Uh, but here's what you need to know today. What you need to know is very important. Um, this is a very important topic. Uh, in 1983, uh, the late Phyllis Schlafly wrote a column. I look at her columns all the time. You should, too. If you go to phyllisschlafly.com, you can see all of her archived columns. She wrote, she wrote thousands and thousands of pages of documents, uh, columns, books, radio commentaries, all kinds of things. In 1983, she wrote a column, a Phyllis Schlafly report, uh, which is like a four-page newsletter, and one whole section of it was on uh, what she called the despair uh, industry and um, and she she used even as I'm describing it to you she used better language than I'm doing she said it better than I am but she was talking about what um, she recognized was the problem of uh, people who give up 
And so she she wrote and, and there was a I had never seen this um, uh, until I read her. Um, there was a study uh, by the chief army psychiatrist. His, his name was Major Dr. Major William Mayer. He was a doctor, uh, chief psychiatrist who was also a major in the army. Uh, and after the Korean War, they studied the GIs who had been victims, uh, uh, had been POWs. And they went back and looked at what had happened and how it worked, because that was the first uh, the first time they had, I forget whatever reason, the studies done. I think they had looked at that after World War II. But anyway, it, it is what it is. But in this case, they came up and they described a strange new disease. And they called it give up itis, give up itis, in which um, some POWs who lost their will to survive, their will to live, and they just went and crawled up in a corner and, and died. And so they're describing this, uh, you know, the psychiatrist about what happened. And there were a couple examples of this and they wrote about it. Well, going forward, Phyllis was writing about the give up itis malady and how there was a recent uh, that time, a set of news articles that were describing people who were saying how everyone should despair over uh, fear of nuclear war. You know, it's the early 1980s. And so that was one of the things that they said, oh, Reagan's a cowboy and there could be nuclear war. And, and she went on about how there was these despair everywhere people everywhere they turn and they'd say, look at the despair everywhere. And, and, and here's what Phyllis is inside. What I want to tell you, this is what you need to know today. Give up itis. Despair is, is contagious. It's not quite as bad. It doesn't, it's not quite as deadly right now as the China virus, the Wuhan virus, the coronavirus. In some ways it is, though. And what's happening in this country is we have a problem where people, especially in authority, people in positions of authority, in the media, in elected office, they're, they're just selling despair. They're sowing despair and it's catching. So in Minnesota, the terrible tragedies that you're seeing unfold in the, the looting, there was, a car, there was a terrible tragedy with a young man that, got, that died. He had an officer. It looked like the officer was, you know, blocking his, his breathing and he died. Now, the four officers that were fired, police officers, two of them are people of color and two of them happen to be white. The, the, the perpetrator or the, the person who was being arrested and the, the victim in this case who died was black. But it's not exactly a race war. And yet, if you watch the television, even the conservative stations cannot stand, uh, cannot stop covering burning buildings and looting and rioting and talking about how bad things are. I'm sorry. That's just not accurate. I'm all for someone telling me the troubles in their lives. That's fine. And there are really structural problems, mostly because of the education system that keeps people that don't have enough money and school systems that aren't good enough. But that's a different conversation. But the idea of what we're getting is the despair everywhere crew is trying to spread this, whether it's over the over the Wuhan virus, the China virus, whether it's over uh, this uh, Minnesota uh, death, whatever it's over, the Despair Everywhere crew is trying to spread into our lives. And here's the problem. It works. It works. Just like we talked four days ago about the power of the economy and thinking positively, thinking directionally to get better, get stronger, get going. It, the Despair Everywhere crew is very, very potent and they're very powerful and they're growing. And we have a responsibility to recognize what's happening. And one, to not fall for it ourselves and it's not that easy, you know, on the, on the right or the, not the right, this populist right, whatever it is, you'll see people complaining, oh, Trump didn't do that. Trump didn't do this. The Congress didn't do that. The, I'm, I, I'm, I'm someone that will say that, especially about Congress. 
I mean, especially about Congress. But that is a difference between challenging our folks in whatever party to do better and then give up itis. And there's a whole bunch of people that wanted to give up itis and give up itis and the despair everywhere crowd. It's not just about making you feel bad, although it does. It's also about driving down your enthusiasm for what's happening so that you continue to support that, whether it's politics, whether it's the economy, whether it's your local community, whatever it is. So number one thing is we can't fall for it. But number two thing is we have to fight through it for our neighbors and our friends. You know, our friends and neighbors are watching television. And if they're watching CNN, they're just getting despair everywhere all the time. Even if they're watching Fox or some of the conservative sides, more conservative sides, they're still getting a load of that because the business model sells. You know, that's what they're doing. And our responsibility is to recognize what's happening. You know, the the potent example that Phyllis Schlafly gave in her column in 1983 was an educator, a a guy who would go around and he would say to young students, uh, students, I think, in high school. And he'd say, I polled these students and 99 percent of them raised their hand and said that their fear of nuclear annihilation was their number one thing in their lives. You say, oh, my gosh, that sounds terrible. It must have been terrible. 1983, Red Dawn, the movie was coming out a few years later. It was terrifying. Except what Phyllis revealed was before he asked that question, he had given them this terrifying spiel on what would happen if there's a nuclear war and how everybody would be, you know, the day after, if you're old enough to remember the day after movie came out and all this. Despair everywhere. Give up itis. It's a very dangerous thing. And here's the last thing I'll tell you what you need to know. It's it's terribly un-American. It, it doesn't mean that we always know how it's going to turn out. George Washington didn't as he was hustling down from New York and, and through New Jersey and worried in the and the, you know, in, in the in the, the winter, uh, you know, 1776. And he's wondering all that stuff we know. But Americans believe going forward. They believe they lean forward into the future. They know the basics are right. God, the rule of law, constitution, and give up itis is trying to get you to give up on just those things. It's very dangerous. It's very dangerous. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we will talk with, uh, well, Joel Pollock's on today, and we'll also talk with Wally Zimolong. i got to practice that. Zimolong, the attorney from Pennsylvania. We'll take a quick break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on Project Pro-America. Be right back. Ed Martin and the Pro-America Report. On The Answer, San Diego. Welcome back. Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. Uh, Good to be with you. You know, uh, we have um, a lot of things happening across the country. I keep trying to get you updated uh, on all these different things. You know, it's um, it's, uh, in different states. There's different status. That sounds kind of clever. I didn't mean it to sound so clever. But um, in different states, there's different status, right? Different governors are doing different things. And you heard some of them. You hear, you know, uh, you hear you seem to hear a lot of attention from uh, Newsom uh, in California and Cuomo in New York. But over in Pennsylvania, it's... It's a mess. And Governor Wolf, um, well, he's making a mess of it. And our next guest is Wally Zimelong. And Wally is the lead attorney uh, for a group. And I'll put this piece up in uh, uh, in uh, there's a piece on Breitbart about uh, businesses uh, that had their uh, business um, licenses or their ability to do business checked and uh, and some other stuff going on. And this is all the Tom Wolf, uh, Governor Wolf. Is it Tom Wolf? I might be saying it. Yeah, Tom Wolf. Uh, Governor Wolf is sort of lockdown order. So first of all, welcome, Wally. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. 
Well, uh, it's uh, it's good to have you on. And Wally, we really haven't heard that much in the national media about Pennsylvania. So what's the state of things? How, you know, how much disease is there? You know, how much worry is there? I mean, in, Penn, in New York, the New York, the numbers were sort of they, they seemed outrageous uh, and maybe they weren't that accurate. I don't know. But as it's all the dust has settled, there's been a lot of death in nursing homes, for example. Is, how's Pennsylvania faring in this in this battle? Well, to say Pennsylvania is a mess is putting it kindly. Uh, uh-huh. It's a mess top da- from the top down, from the way uh, that the governor has handled the uh, mitigation efforts and their impact on small businesses, to the way that he and his secretary of health have uh, tried to mitigate deaths in the nursing home. And, and uh, we're one of the states where we saw uh, folks that were infected with COVID forced into the nursing homes causing deaths. So the death rate, as opposed to some other states, is relatively low in Pennsylvania. And I believe the latest statistics show that at least 70 percent of all of the uh, 3,000 or so deaths from COVID-19 in Pennsylvania were nursing home related. But that hasn't hmm. stopped uh, our governor from treating this like the bubonic plague. The state has more or less been in a complete lockdown for the last 10 weeks, and the governor has ruled with nothing but unfettered authority. Uh, particularly hard hit is the uh, economically rich southeastern part of the state where I'm located, where the city of Philadelphia is located and some of the, the populous uh, counties that surround it, uh, large uh, business center, uh, large source of tax revenues for the Commonwealth. Uh, we have uh, been mired in uh, the uh, governor's uh, dreaded red zone for the last 10 weeks. And except for so-called life-sustaining businesses, uh, every business has remained shut. And ostensibly, we've been forced to remain indoors, although uh, as each day goes by, I think uh, more and more people are ignoring that order more and more. So, uh, Wally, what's t- walk us through what happened in particular, these businesses that uh, you're helping represent, that they had some uh, ability to operate and then it was taken away. And where is that? Walk us through it. So w- one of the indications about the ham-handed approach that our governor took here is that uh, very abruptly on, on March 18th, he declared on three hours notice that all uh, so-called life-sustaining or non-life-sustaining businesses need to close. And unlike some other states where they, they went at some lengths to define what is a life-sustaining business and what is a non-life-sustaining business, the governor simply attached to his executive order categories of the types of businesses that he considered life-sustaining uh, as opposed to non-life-sustaining. Now, businesses had to contend whether or not they fit into one of those categories, And then to make matters worse, the governor appeared at a press conference the next day and said, well, if you think you're a non-life-sustaining business, you can apply for a waiver. Well, guess what? 42,000 businesses apply for a waiver. 7,000 businesses are granted waivers. So these are non-life-sustaining businesses that, at least according to his executive order, are a vector for the spread of disease. Now, how he determined that life-sustaining businesses like grocery stores and big box retail places, things like that, were not a vector of a, to spread the disease uh, and that small businesses were is beyond me. I guess we'll find out in discovery in our lawsuit. And then after 7,000 waivers for these, these uh, so-called non-life-sustaining businesses were granted, he abruptly ends the program. Well, what we found huh. out was 
uh, we have clients who were denied waivers, but they had competitors, identical businesses. One was located down the street who was granted a waiver. And it's simply impossible that the folks that were reviewing these waivers could have made a determination that uh, my clients' businesses needed to remain closed, that somehow they were a, a greater risk at spreading of spreading COVID-19. And their competitor down the street, an identical business, same size, same customer, same geographic area, was not a vector of disease. So that's the thrust of our lawsuit. And, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. And the right. governor uh, fought uh, a subpoena from our Republican-controlled uh, state Senate for uh, disclosing not only the list of names of the businesses that got these waivers, which we eventually were able to secure, and there were things on there like bicycle shops, a taxidermist, a uh, flower store, and my favorite, a hair salon located in Harrisburg, which happens to be the state capital of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. We'll have to see who was using that uh, facility. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, it's it, it totally crazy. Um, no one can determine who these businesses are, why they got waivers, why some didn't, but we'll find out in discovery. That's the thrust of our lawsuit, and we're seeking injunctive relief against the governor. So this never can happen again, especially if uh, uh, he tries to uh, shut yeah. some businesses back down because of this dreaded second wave, which count me in the minority that I don't think it's going to materialize. Well, and, and Wally, let me make sure the people that are listening, and we, this will go around the country. Uh, we're talking with Wally Zimelong, who's helping in Pennsylvania. People that may want to find out more, Wally, and i got a couple minutes left. I have another question for you, but I don't want to forget. It's uh, ZimelongLaw.com, right? So I'll put it up on social media, but Z-I-M-O-L-O-N-G-L-A-W-Law.com. Um, people should go there. They can find out more, get in touch with you. If they're in, in their own state or they've got things happening, um, you can at least uh, point them in the right direction. But let me ask you what's the chances you know one of the problems with emergencies is elected officials or non-elected officials do something and they hide behind that well it's an emergency it's temporary and by the time you get a chance to get to the point of of asserting it things have changed a lot uh, is that i mean one level you probably hope that pennsylvania is more open and everything starts to move what's it feeling like in terms of moving and your ability to get to the bottom of this well, in, in some regards, I think efforts by myself, my lawsuits, some lawsuits uh, from others, uh, and in particular, our GOP-controlled House and Senate, uh, the tremendous pressure on Governor Wolf has gotten him to move somewhat, much slower than we'd like right. to see. But time and time again, what we've seen from Governor Wolf is this is a person that backs down from a fight. So we're keeping the pressure on, and we're hoping that uh, the restrictions lift. We haven't had any restrictions lift in, in uh, where, where we are. But the important thing here is to set a precedent. And even though in the immediate term uh, a, a lifting of the restrictions may get my clients open, standing for purposes of Article 3 is measured at the time the injury is sustained. So suddenly if the governor decides to open up and my, my clients are allowed to open their businesses back up a week from now or two weeks from now, that does not move our lawsuit. We fully intend to pursue the suit and get adjudication uh, from the federal court in the form of an injunction. So this can't happen again in October or November or next year when it's not only COVID-19, but I'm sure this has sparked their interest in using emergency orders for a whole host of progressive causes. 
Yeah, it's going to be uh, well, it's I'm glad you're on the front lines of this. And I think, um, again, there hasn't been as much coverage of Pennsylvania. So, I, I mean, I know there's a lot going on. So I'm glad you're in on this. I'm glad I'm seeing more uh, as I searched around the Internet, your your uh, arguments and your and your cases getting some attention. So keep us in the loop on it. Wally, Wally's him along. And I'll put up on social media. There's a good piece at Breitbart that describes some of what happened in Pennsylvania. Breitbart.com. We'll put that up so people can track it. Let us know what's going on. Come back on and give us an update. OK, Wally? Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Have a good day. All right, great. Thanks very much. You too. Uh, We'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. Be back in a minute. Ed Martin and the Pro-America Report. On The Answer San Diego. Welcome back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. I told you for this a couple days now, I've been looking forward to talking with Joel Pollack. He's a great, great, great journalist over at Breitbart.com. Good, great writer, but really one of the more, uh, the sharpest analytical investigative reporter. Just sees the field almost better than anybody. It's really important. If you're not reading everything he writes, you're making a mistake. And his Twitter feed is really fun, too. He, he, he fights back, which is awesome. It's just fun. So welcome, Joel. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, it's great to have you on. So we're going to get to your book, Red November, which I think, first of all, the late Phyllis Schlafly, who I know you uh, you knew and uh, knew well, she she appeared in your pages quite a few times. But she used to say that half of a half of a book uh, is its title, and uh, and so Red November is a great title for a book because, as I explained to my listeners a little guy a little while ago, it's not hey the voters are they going to pick red as in you know uh, Republican or are they going to pick red red as in socialist? So it's a clever title. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, let me ask you about the. Um, you, you know, uh, Joel, you were one of the best reporters on the what's called the Charlottesville hoax, right? The the fake news trying to make the president into something he wasn't, which was you know a friend of the white supremacists. Now we've got this situation where two. Uh, police officers of color, two white officers. It looks like they hurt this kid and he ended up dying. And now we have riding across the country and people are talking about race war. What are we supposed to do, Joel, when we watch the news so unfair and so terrible? I mean, how do we cut through this? Well, the best way is, first of all, to withhold judgment and treat people as if they're just like you. So when you hear the media reporting that the president supported some very awful demonstrations in Charlotte, uh, sorry, Charlottesville, you know, hang back and think, well, maybe I'm not hearing the whole story. And that's exactly what happened with Charlottesville, that the president never supported the neo-Nazis and white supremacists. He, in fact, condemned them a few seconds later. And that was left out of the clips that were broadcast and that are still being used by media and by Joe Biden. So the truth has been hidden. In fact, it's been completely inverted. And I think with issues like what we saw in Minneapolis, I think we have to also, as intelligent consumers of media, get a little bit better at separating issues. So there is a question about what the police do, and that's one debate. And then there's a question about how people are responding in Minneapolis. And the looting, especially, is disturbing to many Americans. I actually interviewed one of the attorneys for Ahmad Arbery, who was the African-American man who was shot and killed in February. That's become a, an issue in Georgia. He was killed by uh, two white men who have been arrested. Now a third has been arrested as an accomplice in, in charge with murder. 
And it's a very fraught case, and it took a long time to investigate because initially prosecution didn't want to go ahead with it. I talked to the attorney, and he was really interesting. His name's Lee Merritt. And he said, ironically, one of the reasons they were able to crack the case, so to speak, they were able to find this video of the shooting, which allowed the prosecutors to move forward, finally. One of the reasons they were able to do it was coronavirus, because people were at home. They weren't protesting. They weren't causing chaos in the streets. You didn't see any kind of unrest. And so it allowed the public and the investigators to focus on the evidence. So we weren't having a, a big debate about whether the tactics had gone too far and whether the activists were causing more trouble and Al Sharpton didn't show up. You know, we weren't having this big, broader discussion about every single other thing that had happened. The justice in this case moved forward because people were able to focus. Now, in Minneapolis, you see what I think is a consensus that something wrong probably happened in that arrest. Again, we always have to wait for more facts to come out, but you look at that video and it doesn't look right. It looks quite disturbing, actually. But then you have people showing up and looting. And that right. doesn't mean everybody who's upset at the death is is implicated in that looting. But certainly there's not enough condemnation of it going on. And those things have to be separated. We can have a conversation as a country about policing and about race. And, and we can have many such conversations and we can have more. But we are able to have them in a civil way. That stops when people are given license to behave like the looters were behaving. I should note the looters were of every color and every age and gender. You know, it was a free-for-all. Right. Just unacceptable. So we have to separate those things. We're talking with Joel Pollack, and his uh, Twitter handle is at Joel Pollack. It's a really good one. And, and Joel, I saw first on your Twitter feed and then went and clicked through to Breitbart.com a piece um, uh, that was, I think, one of your colleagues wrote, uh, but you had tweeted about Twitter finally fact-checking a Chinese government account. What's your experience? What Not an experience. What's your sense now of Twitter's attempt to so-called fact-check? I mean, is there any way that this can work for them? I mean, doesn't it feel feels like it's like a lose, lose, lose for them. And it, it doesn't make them more credible. It makes them more uh, kind of uh, biased, it feels like to me. And I don't know how they're, I don't know what the way forward is. What's your sense? I don't think there's a way forward for them in this because they're now saying that they were correcting President Trump on his statement that the ballots that are going out or the ballot applications that are on the California aren't going to everybody, but are just going to registered voters. Even when I tried to explain it to you just now, I I tripped up over something because it's such a complicated issue. And it's very difficult to know what's happening. By the way, California's attempt now to send these ballots or ballot applications out to everybody, it's now being challenged in court. So we don't even know what it's going to be doing because the Judicial Watch and some of the Republicans in California have said this is unconstitutional. Hutchinson says specifically that voting is up to state legislatures, not to the governor. The governor does not have the constitutional authority to decide how elections are going to happen. He's decided that he's going to send these absentee ballot applications out, but it's the state legislature that has to decide. And California's state legislature has passed a law saying that county governments are the ones who decide whether to send out these mail ballots. And in previous elections, that's how it's worked. I think something only a minority of California counties actually do this. So Gavin Newsom's going against the will of the California legislature. 
So it's really complicated. I don't know how Twitter knows what the truth is going to end up being here because the policy is very much in flux. It's, it's the subject of a court case involving constitutional challenge. So there's no way out of this for them because they're going to have to keep inventing reasons why they intervened in this case and not in others. And, of course, their policy, yeah. which they point to, says we don't want people manipulating elections or interfering in elections. Pretty much every political tweet on Twitter seeks to have an effect on the elections. <laughs> I don't know how they're going to get this done. Yeah, that's right. All right, let me sh- let me shift over. Let me shift over, Joel, because I want to run out of time. We're talking with Joel Pollack uh, from Breitbart and his book, which comes out uh, in about four or five weeks, and we'll have I'll be back on again. When we get closer. Is called Red November. Will the country vote red for Trump or red for socialism? Uh, and you can get it. I see it. I see it. I pre-ordered it on uh, Amazon.com. I think. Uh, but Joel, when you write a book, I mean, even though you're prolific, you have to write a book a couple months ago. I mean, right? You weren't writing this book during the. Uh, uh, the the China virus shutdown, I think maybe you're editing it, but how does it now that you have uh, little governors, you know, governors becoming little, uh, you know, uh, socialist or dictators of their places? How's your book going to fare in terms of the <laughs> what we've seen in the last few months? I think you're asking. It's got to be hard to market a book during an economic crisis, and it <laughs> is. You have to get creative. Yeah. Right, it has been. A, a challenge, but I think there's a lot of interest in this book. One of the things I, I think people are going to enjoy about Red November is that the whole first half or two-thirds of the book is about the campaign before the coronavirus. I did actually write it through the primary, through the impeachment, through the coronavirus, and I'm up to date basically to the beginning of May with all the things that were happening. Oh, wow. So, But the, what's interesting about the earlier part of the book is that it's a throwback to the good old days when people were shaking hands and kissing babies, you know, when we had big campaign rallies <laughs> and, and right. coffees at voters' houses. And, you know, that's what campaign campaigns will be like again one day. But it feels so strange now to read about all that when many people are still living in cities that have these shelter-in-place orders like we do here in Los Angeles. And I just think it's kind of fun. It's almost a form of escape to say, hey, this is what America used to be like. We'll be like that again. But it seems so unfamiliar at the moment. And it's kind of fun. Uh, we're talking with Joel Pollack. Hey, Joel, um, the book, uh, if you had to describe now your, your job as a journalist is not to, you know, you're not you're not picking sides. I'm talking about, though, predicting um, or describing where you think the voters are. You know, are we dealing with a 45 percent of the country just loves Trump no matter what? Forty five percent is going to vote for whoever's against him. And there is a middle. Uh, are we dealing with the you know, in, in I remember in 2016, I must have done 100 interviews in the last two weeks where everybody was quoting to me that all the polls said Trump's going to lose. And I kept saying, yeah, I'm from Missouri. They have him winning by four. I think he's going to win by more than that. He won by 19, you know. Uh, uh, what, do you, what do you think? The, the, can you tell yet or can you even mess around predicting what, what the red November is, which way it goes? I can't. And like everybody, I think I go through different feelings about it on different days. But right now I'd say I think the country is going to be hard pressed to choose Joe Biden over Donald Trump just in terms of managing the country. The, the question is going to be one of personalities for the Biden campaign. They're going to have to convince Americans that Trump is just unacceptable as a personality. And the more they can lure him into fights and little skirmishes over this and that, the better it is for them. I think, though, that when you start comparing the ability of the two candidates to actually run the country to do the job, there's just no way that Joe Biden compares to Donald Trump. 
even if you don't like what Donald Trump is doing, he's certainly done a lot of it. And Joe Biden basically emerged mm-hmm. from his basement once in the last three months. So I think that it's a situation that favors Trump slightly, although the tech companies are doing their very best to make sure that they tip the scales in the other direction. Uh, it, that part of it is amazing. All right, Joel, I got to run. It's Joel Pollack. We'll have you back on. I know the book comes out in about four or five, maybe six weeks from now, July 14th. So uh, Red November, Will the Country Vote Red for Trump or Red for Socialism by Joel Pollack. In the meantime, before you get the book uh, or before if you pre-order it, before it comes in the mail, go to Breitbart.com and read everything Joel Pollack writes. It's all good. And over at Twitter, he does a good job, too. So thanks for the time, Joel. Appreciate it very much. Thanks, Ed. All right, we'll talk again soon. All right, take it. We'll take a quick break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Be back in a minute. Ed Martin and the Pro America Report on the Answer San Diego. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily broadcast from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, a national volunteer organization founded by Phyllis Schlafly and continuing to uphold her legacy by opposing radical feminism and representing a traditional conservative perspective in our nation's capital. And now, from the archives of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, here is Phyllis Schlafly. When I visited London, I knew my life as a pedestrian was always in danger. The automobiles were always coming from where I didn't expect them, because the Brits drive on the wrong side of the road. The same way for the Brits who visit the United States. An English woman named Laurie Penny was crossing 6th Avenue in New York and looking the wrong way. A taxi was headed directly toward her when, lo and behold, heartthrob Ryan Gosling came to her rescue, grabbing Penny and pulling her out of harm's way. It was a classic man-saves-woman event. But Penny is a self-described feminist, and her response shows one of the things that's so wrong about feminism. Penny portrayed herself as insulted by media coverage of the event. She posted online, I really do object to being framed as the ditzy damsel in distress. I do not mean any disrespect to Ryan Gosling, who is an excellent actor, and by all accounts, a personable and decent chap. But as a feminist, a writer, and a gentlewoman of fortune, I refuse to be cast in any sort of boring supporting female role. Now, if American women want to know where all the manly men have gone, they can blame it on the feminists. Not only can men no longer hold the door open for women, they can't even save a woman's life and get a gracious thank you. Feminists have destroyed the relationship between men and women. Most women like big, strong John Wayne-type men. They want men who bravely put out fires and fight in combat and protect their wives and children against intruders and save damsels in distress. But the feminists have made a lot of men afraid to be manly. It's time to say we love manly men. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. You've seen the desperation of women's marches, the disgrace of Planned Parenthood, the rise of savvy young conservative women. Radical feminism is heading down a dead-end road. Voice your opinion on what's really important to women at phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report.
Welcome back. Ed Martin here to Pro-America Report. It's a great show right there. You need to go over, uh, visit uh, ProAmericaReport.com. ProAmericaReport.com. I'll have all the standalone interviews. Joel Pollack uh, will also include uh, um, the uh, interviews earlier this week. There's lots of good folks. And Wally Zimalong, I'm practicing his name, the lawyer who's helping fight back against Pennsylvania's oppression. Now, let me get this uh, out of the way. Uh, Two things. One, uh, I got an email from one of our listeners asking me about the conventions. I guess Dr. Fauci, I didn't see this, Dr. Fauci, the famous Fauci man, was on TV and said he wasn't sure that the uh, conventions, the the presidential, um, the party conventions could go forward. They're both scheduled now for late August. Um, Now, the Democrats, I am told, and I've asked around a bit, they they don't really want to have a convention. They're happy to have theirs be a virtual convention. They know they'll get primetime TV coverage and all that, and they don't really care um, to do it, mostly, I think, because it's Joe Biden. And uh, but who knows? I would say the Democrats are more likely right now to cancel theirs or go virtual sooner. I do know and I talked to somebody in the in the White House and the Trump campaign that the president really, really wants to have his convention and wants to do it the old fashioned way. Um, You'll see these articles in the paper that say he wants to have a crowd and he wants to be all this adulation. I, I think he just wants to. He's the president. He wants to have his convention. Right. I mean, I don't quite blame him if I was president. I think I'd want to have my convention, too. So um but I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I think I think everybody is expecting that, that by the time you get to August, we'll have figured out how to handle it. But who knows? Who knows? Right. So uh, in answer to this question, this email from James, uh, I, th- I would say, um, oh, he asked me if you should plan on going to Charlotte, uh, North Carolina for the Republican convention. Um, I-, I-, I wouldn't not plan on it. I mean, I wouldn't might not buy a ticket quite yet, but um, I think um, I think there's a likelihood there's going to be a likelihood it'll be pretty close to a normal convention. But we'll see. Um, last one uh, to cover is the China situation. Um, we talked earlier in the program with Joel Pollack that Twitter is finally doing some kind of fact check on China's tweets. Uh, not that it matters much. But here's where um, people don't realize what's happening. And I've talked about it for six months. Um, when Hong Kong first tried to get some um, some independence and, and to fight back against the encroaching uh, mainland China, the Beijing policies that Beijing is doing, there was a member, there was a period of time where there was unrest. Remember Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri went over there. There was protests and all. And then the Chinese mainland Chinese, the Chinese communists backed off. And at the time, I said they've only backed off to buy some time until it, it's a better time for them to come back and take over. So they must have decided now's a better time. The world is preoccupied with coronavirus and the Wuhan virus, the China virus. And so China has now taken the steps to effectively get a stranglehold on Hong Kong. You know, when when the Brits left Hong Kong, the Brits had sovereignty in Hong Kong from a colonial era and they left. I think it was 1997. I should look that up. It's 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 close to it's close. They might have left in 1997 and then it was like a 10 year um, uh, kind of uh, pass uh, off to independence. But but the, the deal at the time was that you would they would leave and they would leave Hong Kong. And uh, yeah, it was a transfer of sovereignty of Hong Kong uh, from the UK back uh, to uh, from the UK to the PRC um, in uh, 1997. And so the idea was that we sort of had a deal that the, the Chinese would let Hong Kong stay and continue to be a successful market economy. You know, there was lots of transparency, lots of free enterprise, the rule of law and all. And 
what's happened over these years now, you know, it's uh, close to 25 years, a little bit less than 25 years, is that the Chinese, the communists have decided they didn't care. They decided that they're not going to honor that. And so here they come. And what they announced in the last two days was that they're going to crack down. They're going to change the laws in such a way that they're going to uh, to make it impossible for Hong Kong to stay independent. And what I said six months ago is eventually Hong Kong will be swallowed up by the, the communist Chinese. That's always been their plan. They're just going to wait till the time is right. I'm not saying it's good, and we're, but we're certainly not going to go to war over Hong Kong. But the question is whether Taiwan is next and whether, you know, uh, anything in the uh, South China Sea is next. It gets complicated fast. So, uh, but that's what's happening in Hong Kong right now, these days. All right, we got to run. We got to run. Thank you to Noah, our great technical director, Joanna, for producing. Thank you for listening. And we will be back tomorrow night. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Talk to you then.